And uh, I am Pastor Jim, if you happen to be visiting here for the first time today. Grateful that you are here, all of you, on a beautiful day. Uh, and Chris alluded to the fact that we have about 45 of our young families, that's the parents and the kids that are over in Michigan, having a great time camping out over the weekend. And I'm sure that they are having their own little church service this morning right where they're at, around the campfire or something like that. So, but a beautiful weekend to do it and a beautiful weekend here in Illinois too. Well, uh, I want to reemphasize a mission stay this coming Sunday. Yeah, it's going to be a great opportunity for us. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples when you demonstrate it by the love. And this is a practical way to get out and just show our community that we really do care. Our faith really has substance to it. So I encourage you to come and be along if you possibly can do that. Well, uh, we're in the month of June now, and we're entering uh, the last four weeks in our teaching through the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke, the story of Jesus by his biographer, Luke. And today we come to chapter 21. We are calling these final four uh, sermons, we're, we're just sort of designating them, pay attention, because Jesus is having his final conversations with his disciples. And so those have got to be really important words. We're going to look at one of those final conversations today in chapter 21. Uh, you know, it's just three days now before Jesus is going to be crucified. And uh, the topic of this last conversation is Jesus is turning to the future. And what he does, you know, when we study history, we usually study what has happened before. Well, Jesus has a different slant on history. He's going to, he shares with his disciples history of the future, future history. He gives a sketch, both long, a short-term and long-term, of what is going to happen through the end of this age of history that you and I are still a part of. So this is a pretty interesting chapter. And I'm going to try to walk through it. Now, it's a long chapter. I'm going to have to summarize some of this so that we can, and my, my goal is to help us come out of this with a, a grasp of the key things that Jesus is saying here. So I'm going to ask you to, to, to pay attention, okay, here this morning. All right. Now, the thing that Jesus is going to point out is that the future of this world, the history of this world, unfolds around the city of Jerusalem, which God chose centuries ago to be the capital city, not only of the nation of Israel, but ultimately Jerusalem, the capital city of the entire planet. It's the city from which the kingdom of God is going to spread to the entire planet. Uh, you know, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, someday, he's going to return as the resurrected Savior King of the entire world, the Messiah. He's going to fulfill all those promises, and he's going to rule this world from the city of Jerusalem. And this is what he's going to spell out for us as we walk through this passage. So, the temple, I want to say this too, the temple was at the very center of the city of Israel. In fact, it rose above it on Mount Zion. And it was the pride of the people of Israel. It was the place where the presence of God had way back in the days of Solomon, almost a thousand years before, 
The presence of God had filled the temple. Now the, Solomon, the temple of Solomon eventually got destroyed. And then the temple that we're talking about today is the temple that Herod, King Herod, built. It was a magnificent place. And that's, so the disciples, verses 5 to 19, here's the summary. Jesus has just been teaching at the temple. And as they're leaving, some of Jesus' disciples begin to remark about the awesomeness and the beauty of the temple. And it was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Herod spent, spared no expense. He spent over 40 years building this temple. It was huge. It was majestic. It was awesome. It was made out of polished limestone. And then on one of the walls, there was this huge golden vine that was made out of pure gold. Uh, and the grapes on it were as big as a person. So this was a, it was a glorious thing to behold. And the disciples are just exclaiming about it. But then in the middle of their discussion, Jesus drops a big bomb. And this is what he says. As for what you see, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them is going to be thrown down. And this completely shook his, the disciples. And so they asked Jesus three questions in their shock. One is, when will these things happen? Number two, what will be the sign that they're about to take place? And then Matthew, who writes the same, covers this same material, one of the other biographies of Jesus, he, he adds a third question to this. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Then in verses, 18, or verses 8 to 19, Jesus, he first addresses what is going to happen in the not-so-distant short-term future. And this is what he says, basically. He says, after I die, there are going to be many false messiahs who are going to arise among you and they're going to be calling for the people of Israel to go to war against Rome. And they're going to be promising that if we'll just go to war and stage an uprising against Rome, then that's going to initiate God bringing his kingdom to the earth. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey, it's going to sound appealing because the people of Israel were under horrible oppression by Rome. But he says to them, don't believe it. Don't follow these deceived leaders. And then he says, when you decide not to follow them because of your faith in me, your own people are going to start turning against you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to put you in prison. You're going to suffer for your faith. Some of you may even die for your faith. But he says, be strong because even if you die, you win. And isn't that a rock bottom confidence that we Christians can have? that even death cannot separate us from Christ. Well, anyhow, just as Jesus predicted, for the next 35 years or so after his death, there were many false messiahs who stirred the people of Israel to riot and rebel against Rome. And finally, Rome just got a little bit sick and tired of this, and their patience ran out with Israel. And then... In verse number 20, Jesus, he foretells exactly what's going to happen. Looking ahead 37 years from A.D. 33 to A.D. 70, 
Jesus says this in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation, its destruction is near. And then Jesus describes in the next couple of verses the horror that's going to befall the city of Jerusalem. He describes it like this. Then let those who are living in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out as quick as they can. Let those that are in the country not enter the city of Jerusalem. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers who are the most vulnerable. They can't travel. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. So the wrath of Rome is going to come crushing and crashing down on the city of Jerusalem. And in AD 70, the Roman general Titus set up a five-month siege against the city of Jerusalem. And finally, they sacked the city. And then literally, as Jesus had said, the Romans tore the temple apart stone by stone by stone, and then they burnt it. They completely destroyed the city. Josephus, who is one of the Jewish historians who lived at that time, he states that 1,100,000 Jewish people were killed and that 97,000 were taken captive. In other words, that was a first century holocaust that fell upon the, 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 people, the, the people of Israel. And then in verse number 24, Jesus makes a transition in what he's saying from the short-term future, this event that, of the fall of Jerusalem, and he makes a statement that stretches right out into the far distant future, right down to our own day. So verse number 24 is an extremely important statement that Jesus makes. This is what he says. They, that is the people of Israel, will fall by the sword, and they will be taken prisoners to all the nations. The, the 97,000 prisoners that Josephus talked about, Rome took them and sent them to be slaves throughout the Roman Empire. And then here's the critical statement that Jesus makes. Jerusalem will be trampled on, that is, occupied and ruled over, by the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish nations, until the times or the history of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So what Jesus is doing here is he is setting up a time frame. What he's really saying is there is a day coming when the people of Israel, who have been scattered over the face of the earth, and whose homeland has been occupied and ruled over by other nations of the world. There is coming a day when the people of Israel are going to come back to their homeland. Then, this is the amazing thing. I think Jesus knows what he's talking about. So for 20 centuries, from A.D. 70, Israel was scattered to all the nations. And for all intents and purposes, 
Israel as a nation was just, it was decimated, it was gone. It was in the dustbin of history. I mean, it was, it was over. But then, on May 14th, 1948, just 70 years ago, at the end of World War II, when after the war, the, nation, the nations in the Middle East and Europe were being reconfigured and reshaped. Miracle of miracles. Out of that came, based upon what's called the Balfour Declaration, with the help of Great Britain and the other allied powers. And interestingly enough, just after a Holocaust that fell upon the Jewish people that was six times worse than the one in AD 70. Israel was declared for the first time since AD 70 once again to be a nation. They returned to their homeland. And they're still there obviously today. We read about it in the newspapers every day. And then in verses 25 through 26, Jesus says this, that after the rule of the Gentile powers is returned to the people of Israel, after Israel becomes a nation once again, the world is going to enter into a time of escalating global danger that threatens the world's very existence. This is how Jesus describes that in verses 25 and 26. He uses what is called apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is what the prophets did when they were forecasting the future. They would, they would talk about, they, it was very graphic, very powerful, very colorful language to make it known that, that tough times are coming. This is what he says. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's a way of saying there's going to be the threat of global destruction, of the world coming unglued. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity, confusion, at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. What he's talking about the sea there is like he's picturing this time in history is going to be like a ship that's out in the ocean and a perfect storm hits. I mean, I don't know if you saw that movie, Perfect Storm, 20 years ago, whenever it was, but to me, in my mind, one of the scariest places I could ever be, because I don't like water, that one of the scariest things it could ever be for me would to be on a boat or a ship when 30-foot waves are... <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying here, the picture, of what the world's going to look like after the time that Israel becomes a nation again and this escalation of threat and danger. And so I think when we describe our world today, okay, when did the nuclear threat rise? I remember in the 1950s when we had air raid drills, and Jill would remember this too. We were elementary kids in school, and we would, when that air raid siren went off, we crawled under our desks. Why? Because the missiles may have been you know, practice for the missiles that could be launched our way. Today we have North Korea, we have Iran. The nuclear threat is, is very real. But it's not just that. Uh, we have economic chaos, racial issues, poverty, famine, pollution, school shootings, injustice, social division, and we have a rampant technology that has arisen in these last 50 or 60 years. 
that is only helping this escalation and helping us to get more creative with our evil and self-destruction. So, in verse number 27, and this is a vitally important statement, and I'm sure that the, eyebrow, the eyebrows of the disciples lifted when Jesus said this. He says, he goes on to say, at that time, after Israel becomes a nation, and when the world is on the verge of self-destruction, the people at that time, they will see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, Jesus would have been saying this up, they will see me coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, this will, this will be the greatest event in the history of the world when Jesus Christ comes again in such great glory. Luke chapter 2, you'll remember, describes the Christmas story and how Jesus came the first time to our world. And when Jesus came into the world the first time, he came very much under the radar. He was very humble. He was born in a manger. There was no room in the inn, all that stuff. And, uh, and only a handful of shepherds really even knew that it took place, other than Mary and Joseph. It was under the radar in his first coming. But when Jesus Christ comes again, it's not going to be under the radar. It, he is going to come with amazing, brilliant publicity. And the whole world is going to take note of Jesus Christ's return. And he, this time, when he came the first time, he came to die as our crucified Savior. The second time he comes, he is coming as the King. Long promised to the people of Israel, promised throughout the Scripture, in fact, Promised by Isaiah. Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born and a son is given. That's the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. But there's more to that story. And the government will be on his shoulders. What government? The government of this world. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of and success of his governance and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, will make sure it gets done. So this Jesus Christ, who came the first time, he's coming a second time. He's coming again, and it has long been and still is ever more, even more so, the longing for all of humanity. When is the world going to come to peace? When is all this threat? When, when is this going to end? It's getting worse and worse. Is there any hope? Are we going down with a ship? Is history random? Is it just cascading haphazardly everywhere to our own self-destruction? No. The promise of God's word from Genesis to Revelation, all centered in one person, Jesus Christ, who fulfills every promise. He promised that he is coming again to this planet, and he is going to rule from the city of Jerusalem on the throne of King David. And he's going to bring peace to this world. The, the, this, Isaiah said that the weapons of war are going to be turned into instruments of peace. I think that's exciting news. I think that's wonderful news. 
Jesus is coming again. Now, when Jesus comes again, or let me ask this, okay. So when is this gonna happen? Okay, let's look at verse 28. Jesus again says, he says this, when these things, what things has he been talking about? The rebirth of the nation of Israel and the world escalated to the edge of self-destruction. When these things begin to be the history of the world, which they have been over the last 70 years or so, then he says, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, the second coming of Jesus to totally redeem and restore the earth. Eden got lost because we fell into sin. Jesus is coming to restore the beauty and the flourishing of Eden back to this planet. That's the promise. That's the hope this world has in Christ. And then Jesus gives an illustration to further drive the point home. It's the illustration of a fig tree. He says this in verse 29, 31. Look at the fig tree and all of the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And then in verse 32, Jesus puts his his integrity on the line. This is what he says. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they will never pass away. Jesus is saying that one of the generations that is alive when these things begin to happen, will not pass away. They're not going to die. They're going to be alive to witness this appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't pinpoint the exact time when this is going to happen. In fact, the scripture says, the disciples asked him one time about that, and he said, I don't even know. It's the Father. He knows that. Uh, And so he doesn't pinpoint it, so is it going to be during my baby boomer generation? If so, it's going to have to happen within the next couple decades, (laughs) okay? Is it going to happen during the millennial generation? Is it going to happen during Generation Z? We, We don't know, and we can't set dates about that, but here's the thing Jesus is giving us the clue for. He is saying that when you begin to see these conditions developing on planet Earth, you can begin to be aware that the final days, the final years, the final decades of history and of this age, they are coming to a close. And that great age of God's kingdom is on the verge of being brought to planet Earth. So. Um, then in verses 34 to 36, this is sort of Jesus' conclusion to his teaching. And it's really, what he's really saying to his, his disciples here and to us is pay attention, pay attention. And this is what he says. 
Be careful, or your hearts may become weighed down. And then he lists a few things. You know, it's easy in this kind of a world for our hearts to get weighed down. Uh, I mean, this is a tough world, not just globally. I mean, I think the issues of living life um, on a personal scale are escalating too. That means suffering is hard. And, and when suffering comes to the people of God, sometimes we feel like quitting. We feel like giving up. Has anybody ever felt like quitting? Has there, anybody ever questioned your faith here? Uh, I have. And, you know, because when the pressures hit, the first question we ask is, Lord, where are you? What? How can a God let a world like this be? What's going on? And then I'm reminded that when God created human beings, he created other beings that can make choices. And that's where the problems with our world have not come from any of the decrees or choices of God. They've come from us who have made some bad choices. And uh, anyhow, the point is this, that suffering can come into this world. Now, in that last statement, I don't want anyone to think here that if you're suffering today, that means that you have personally are being punished by God for some bad choice you made. Jesus blows that theology to smithereens. All we're saying, what I'm saying is this, when you go way back to the garden, and when Adam and Eve made that choice to say we can build the world without God's help, that's what I'm talking about. That's the original break with God. And so what happens is we live in a world where we sin, we all sin, and we all do make bad choices, but you know what? We also get sinned against sometimes. And we may, even children who are innocent, get sinned against and get hurt deeply and desperately in this messed up world of ours. So what Jesus is saying, be careful, or your hearts may become weighed down. And then he says we can turn to, when our hearts get weighed down, there's a temptation to self-medicate, to find to find things that can alleviate the pain. And so he has a list of a few here. He says, don't get weighed down with carousing. Now, carousing is sort of just usually involves sexuality outside of God's boundaries. And I'm trying to satisfy some deep longing inside, and sexuality and sex can be a great way to do that. And so we have the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein, and, and a whole domino effect. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And we, just, we Christians have to be careful that we, we can be tempted too. And we all do get tempted, right? Okay? And then he goes on and says drunkenness, which is, you know, substance abuse. And why do we do all that stuff? So that we can drown out our pain and find new inventive escapes and pleasures. And really what Jesus is saying is anytime we self-medicate and turn to something else to try to satisfy the, the empty core, what we're doing is we're really bowing down to an idol, to a substitute for God. And so Jesus is being pretty tough here and he's being pretty straight and stern on this because he wants to spare our lives destruction. He is the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one that we can turn to who can fill the deepest empty core of our spirit, our being. And then he goes on and says that the anxieties of life 
can overtake us. And he says, be careful about that. Don't let the anxieties of life drown you and drag you away from your faith. And then he goes on and says, and that day, the day when he comes again, will close in on you like a trap. For it will come, that day will come on all who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man when he comes again. So let me, let me wrap it up like this, that statement. Our world under human control is on the verge of self-destruction. I don't think that's, I don't think I can be denied. And our own lives under our own control, they're, they're on the verge of self-destruction. And this is very sad and this is very serious condition for humanity. But none of us has to go down with the ship. None of us have to self-destruct by trying to keep control of our own lives and pushing God out. The whole purpose of Jesus coming into the world the first time was to offer all humanity and every one of us total forgiveness for our break with God, for our sins. He died on the cross bearing your sins and mine and the whole world so that we could invite him to come into our lives, be our savior, fill that empty core inside, and then begin rebuilding our lives around hope, both here and for all of eternity. This age and the age to come. So Jesus is coming a second time to restore this earth. He will come himself to live again with us on this planet as he came to live among us 2,000 years ago. He will rule from the city of Jerusalem over this world. In fact, the book of Revelation says that heaven and earth on that great and glorious day are going to merge. They're going to come together. And this whole world is going to flourish. We think it's beautiful out there today. It's going to be glistening with even more beauty on the day that Jesus Christ comes again. It's going to be radiant. All who place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior have that opportunity to be part of that coming age. That's the hope of the world. Those who reject Jesus, who dismiss him as a heretic, Jesus is here saying, and he's pretty straight, isn't he? He's saying that it's only through me and faith in me, and surrender of life to me, control. There, that's the only path into the future that God has. Uh, and that's something I know that no human being wants to miss out on the future. We have a choice today. We can walk into the, the brilliance and light of what's coming through Christ, or we can continue living on in our darkness, and it's just going to get darker and darker. It's the path of self-destruction. So the question this morning is, have you embraced this hope? Have you embraced Jesus Christ? 
None of us want to be left out of that future. God has planned for us from the moment he conceived of you and me. How do we embrace Jesus Christ? We do that by repenting of our sins. We turn our life over to Jesus. We surrender our whole life. Everything we are, we surrender it to him because he's our maker, he's our creator. He holds the deed and the title to your life, whether you recognize it or not. And the day of our salvation is when we recognize that God holds the deed to my life. I am not my own. I belong to him. He's calling us back to himself today. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you have embraced him, then the message here today is in the middle of these, this final escalation of sorrows and the pains of death and grief that are sweeping across this world globally and personally. Don't give up. Hang on. Go forward in his strength until the day you see him face to face. That day is coming. Now, there's a lot more details to be filled in in this future sketch of history that I did not have time to talk about this morning. I mean, the coming, the rise of a world ruler called the Antichrist that the Apostle Paul talks about very distinctly, uh, and the rapture of the church that the Apostle Paul refers to very distinctly, seven years of a, what's called a great tribulation, all those things. I didn't have time to get into that. We'd be here a long time today. So I just can't get there. We'll have to save that for another time. But I hope that this sketch can help us see what Jesus was saying in that final conversation. And I'm going to wrap it up this way. You know, here's, here's what this really boils down to. Is history just an accident? Is history just random? You know, just a matter of how the, of the intersection of and the outcomes of human events. Is that all history is? Well, illustration. The people who were on that flight back in 2009 with uh, Captain Sully, uh, Sullen, uh, Sullenberger, Captain Sullenberger, uh, that plane took off in New York and um, flock of geese disabled that plane, its engines, and I would imagine, if I had been on that plane, man, I'd have thought, man, I'm, this plane is going down. It's over. Now, some people's view of history is, is sort of like that. In fact, it would be consistent if a person holds that history as simply a random, haphazard, under human control. I think it'd be a safe bet to say, the ship's going down, the plane's going down. But Sully, as we all know, he, <laughs> there was a good pilot at the control. And he landed that plane right on the Hudson River, and all 155 were saved. Not a one of them died. Now, if you have given Jesus Christ pilot status in your life, his promise is, that you are not going to crash, but he is going to land you with all the other people of God in the kingdom of God, ultimately. 
And that is something we can put our feet on and stand firmly. Jesus said, heaven and earth pass away, but my words will never, ever pass away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the certainty, the foundation upon which our faith rests. It rests upon the person, the integrity of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. He came into this messed up world to give us certainty and hope and a foundation to face the future on, both near the future tomorrow as it unfolds and the future a thousand years from now. It all is secure because of Jesus Christ. So we place our faith in you today. And I pray, Lord, if there's a person here today who has not placed their faith in you, I ask, Lord, that your spirit would speak to them and draw them toward yourself, Lord, as the, as the foundation for life. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for this, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' great and his mighty name. Amen.